You're listening to Music Tectonics. Hey everybody and welcome back to Music Tectonics, the podcast where we talk about the intersection between music, technology, and all the seismic shifts affecting both. And we have some really exciting and interesting guests today, but first I better introduce myself. This is Tristra Year Jaeger, the head strategist and writer at Rock Paper Scissors. Rock Paper Scissors is a music and music tech PR firm, and we also get to talk about all sorts of fun ideas at the Music Tectonics conference, at a bunch of uh, virtual meetups we've been organizing lately, and all sorts of other fun stuff. So come to musictectonics.com and you can find out more, but you know the drill. Anyway, I want to get right to my guests who are way more interesting than any um, anything that I could talk about. First of all, we have two folks from Secret Chord Laboratories. They are a startup um, that are and they're attempting to address how we can understand the world of um, the brain, neuroscience, um, and the mind, and how how that plays into music and all the exciting insights we can learn from that. So um, we have David Rosen here with us today and Brian Owens from Secret Chord. David, would you like to tell everybody a little bit about your background and how you got here? Sure. So um, I have a PhD in cognitive neuroscience. I went to school at Drexel in Philadelphia. Um, that's where I met one of our other co-founders, Scott Miles, who also, he was at Georgetown, um, studying neuroscience of music. So my, my area was looking at music and creativity within music, looking at improvisation, and also just kind of how does creativity unfold in the brain. Previously, before that, I've been playing music since, I guess, I was a kid. I started taking piano lessons when I was eight years old. I was playing Billy Joel and, and a bunch of Disney songs from Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast, and picked up the bass when I was 15 and started playing like progressive rock bands. I've been playing the same guys in different different bands for like 20, for about 20 years, and I have a background in education. So um, during my grad school years, I'm doing research on the brain and and the neuroscience of music, our lab was very active in doing a STEAM education, which is really kind of like a holistic approach, which uh, merges the arts and music into a STEM curriculum. So science, technology, engineering, and math. So I've been running programs kind of in that space as well. So that's, that's kind of just gives you a sense. I think of like, it's like a music research, um, neuroscience and education background, I'd say, is how kind of I found myself here at Secret Chord. That's really great. And Brian, tell us a little bit how you came to Secret Chord. Uh yeah sure I have a uh, I have a music background I'm the front man of a funk hip hop band the special guests uh, I have a background in music industry and developing business skills that I didn't necessarily even aim to but just uh, the passion of music and growing uh, the music really put me into some interesting areas. Uh, I have a background also in communication and sales. I've worked with multiple political campaigns here in Virginia and Virginia Beach, uh, speaking on behalf of candidates in public settings. So really taking complex, uh, sophisticated ideas and communicating them to the general public and strategic partners has always been in my background, as well as the love and passion for music that really introduced me to Scott Miles, uh, our co-founder, during his dissertation research. Uh, I was able to be hands-on and help him develop uh, the behavioral side of that study, which is how I met Dave and how really this original Secret Chord team formed. That's really amazing. Um, and that's actually the perfect segue for what I wanted to ask both of you first. 
I wanted to tackle some of the basic science that has been informing Secret Cord and the products you've been building. Um, so first of all, let's get really simple and boil it down for lay people. How exactly do scientists attempt to observe music's effects on the brain, on, on our mind? Um, what are some of the key ways from your own experiences um, that you've approached the, the issue of, you know, how do you even figure out what music is doing in there in your research, since it can feel very, very subjective? How do you quantify, qualify that in a more scientific way? I guess I'll take this one. Um, this is Dave. Um, so I think it, it really starts with a question. That's, that's the basis of research. If you don't, if you don't set a, a clear research question and then hypothesize what you think will happen and why that's happening, I mean, then really that's the basis of everything because from there you need to build kind of an experiment where you're controlling for all the other factors that might be contributing to the thing you're trying to study. So it's, that's like the high, at the highest level, the most basic thing of like, so you can look at music many different ways. So the way our approach, I think, is, has always been to say, okay, so you have all these controls like in, in building these experiments and in the laboratory settings, you're saying like, look, bringing some, there's, there's already inherent like translation problems, right? If you bring someone outside of their normal listening environment, for example, and have them sit in a lab or in an fMRI scanner, right, while listening to, let's say, 45 minutes of, mu of, cons of consistent music, a lot of which is not even music like that you would hear necessarily as you're streaming or on the radio, but it's kind of like uh, controlled stimuli that like maybe don't have lyrics, for example, or maybe are only one instrument or like chords not just being played played on a piano or maybe like just vocals so again how you're going to design those stimuli and, and what you're going to be looking at and what those what you're what you're saying is music right is really like the best approximation that that fits your research question and goal that will all that you think will have meaning in the real world like that's the scientific approach from doing that i think with secret cord laboratories right and then you see like okay this brain area is activated when we looked at harmony in our initial research. So when there's this surprising harmonic structure of a song, so that was the thing that we were controlling for. And what you try to do is you try to say, okay, what can I, what kind of music for this, for the stimulus like creation and the music that you're presenting to participants, you say, okay, our goal was, can we make this music as realistic as possible and get it sounding not just like, you know, either based off of like, some MIDI sounding piano chords based off of like classical music from Bach chorales 300 years ago, but really look at the music that's the most commercially viable, the most listened to music over decades of pop music, billboard charting songs, and then start there and see if we can kind of glean information in that area. And so trying to always create questions that are, that are applicable in the industry and in the, in the marketplace and in what's currently going on. I think kind of was always this this um, important part of the equation as the research was being designed. Cool. And how do you go about it? No, that's that's a good place. That's a really good yeah. place to start. And um, so uh, maybe we should just home in on the element of surprise, which is something that comes up a lot in the way you you talk about what you do at Secret Chord. I was wondering how, first of all, how did you discover this concept of um, surprise? How do you define it? And um, for both of you, um, you know, what are your experiences of surprise and how do you translate them into something that, you know, is kind of reproducible? Dave, I'll let you start and then I'll, I'll jump in. Yeah, I think that's I think it's I think it's a good strategy for this question. So I'm going to be I'll be I'll be brief. 
um, on t- in terms of in terms of surprise. Um, I'll I'll do my best to be brief. <laughs> we didn't discover this this concept of ex of expectation violations or surprise. The idea is, you know, as we're as we're living in the world, we're exposed to certain things just by you know wherever you live. I'm in Philadelphia. I live in the United States. There's certain things going on in your in your environment, and and our brains, um, as cognitive scientists, one of the kinds of questions you you learn you have to answer early on is you know what is the purpose of the human brain? What is it? How is it evolved and adapted? What does it really do well? And what it really does well is it learns about patterns that that go on around us and hypothesize what's going to come next. Because if you know what's going to come next and can think about that as a human, that ultimately makes you able to adapt and learn from situations. So. Um, Leonard Meyer in 1958, his theory was just that these expectation violations, when when your expectations are violated in the right way, lead to preference and enjoyment in music. Um, What we were able to do was kind of take this musicological theory and quantify it, right, by using technology and statistics, like basically using information theory and measures of entropy, which is just kind of like how likely is something to happen, given what you know before. Um, now that that's where this work really started was you can we looked at chords and we said okay we can calculate based on a corpus of music and say how likely are these chords and the different patterns of surprise throughout songs and that was our like kind of first metric and first feature that we looked at and since then kind of the work's grown well well beyond harmony and kind of the first songs that we looked at so i'll say that's that's the kind of that's the background of where expectation violation the quantification of that comes from and i think i'm going to let Brian, from there, take on um, kind of the next piece. Uh, sure, yeah. I feel like all creatives and artists on a certain level understand how expectation violation uh, leads to leads to pleasure and enjoyment. It's the basis of a lot of storytelling to lead your audience in one direction and then surprise them. And in my opinion, the basis of all good comedy is that turn of phrase or that thing hitting you how you didn't expect it. As Dave said, uh, the thing that Secret Chord Laboratories does differently is quantify that. And uh, the way we originally did that uh, was with uh, Scott Miles' PhD dissertation, which is the first project we all worked on together, uh, looked at a, a body of Billboard charting music from Johnny Be Good to Smells Like Teen Spirit. And uh, I'm not going to jump into the all the nerdy details, but uh, we compared a note-for-note transcriptions of the top quartile of Billboard charting songs and compared them to the bottom to discover what it was about the structure of the music that actually led to the preference. Scott and Dave both look at the human brain as music cognitionists, but what we do here is we look at actually what's in the music that's causing this reaction in the brain. And uh, we were able to prove that there was a correlation between the surprises in harmony, the actual chords, and uh, a song being preferred. Uh, Then took it a step further, and uh, we wrote computer code that wrote a bunch of brand new songs uh, modeled after the principles of harmonic surprise that we found in that top quartile and the bottom quartiles as well. And we were able to 
prove uh, that it was, in fact, the structure. We took it from correlation to causation to prove that the structure of the music uh, and the way that it caused surprise actually directly led to preference in people's musical tastes. That is really cool. It must have been a fun study to run, too. And you've also done some work, David, uh, that has to do with what, what, what's going on in the brain itself when people are improvising, say, or doing some things where they may actually engage the sort of principles of, of, of you know, just sort of violating expectations as they're creating something on the fly. Right? You have a paper that is either, um, either in, you know, in print or about to come out um, or came out recently where you did an EEG study of people with different levels of improvisation experience. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how some of those findings um, and some of the work you did as part of Secret Chord uh, play into each other. So just, just to give us a little bit more of a window into what's going on in our brains as we listen or to or make music. Sure. So I, th I think you're speaking about, so I just had an article come out um, in Neuroimage uh, called Dual Process Contributions to Creativity in Jazz Improvisation. So uh, Scott's doctoral work has been on. Yeah, it's it's about to go. It's a very popular popular piece. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, I just stepped on you because there's a delay. No, yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, so you know, Scott's work and Secret Chords work really focuses on the on the perception side of things, like when people are listening, listening, enjoying music, and trying to, you know, really kind of have insights into, you know. What is it about those optimal musical experiences when you're all, especially I mean, now, now we probably appreciate it more than ever, right? Like, you know, being able to have been in those theaters or in those amphitheaters with thousands of people who were all there for the same reason to appreciate like some of their favorite music and to feel what that there's like, there's something there, right? It's like, it's almost like it's, it's intangible, but yet everyone there is, is like feeling it. And like, that's, now we can't go and, and be with people right now. Like so this, our social lives, like that connection. Now we like long for it kind of, kind of more than ever. Anyway, I'm rambling about that. So on the other side, in terms of, um, you know, there's like this really, that's for me, at least I'm not, I'm not rambling. Cause it really kind of addresses this. I'll keep going down this rabbit hole. <laughs> keep um, going. Stop me if you want me to, if, if you want to, what's, what's great. What's amazing about those like powerful experiences that are incredible. They're incredibly mo moving. Cause it's like, that's the, to me, I like to study uh, peak experiences of, of just like human existence and consciousness and as deep as it can go. So like I have a student who studies about like hallucinogenic experiences and other people, another student who I work with st studies meditation, um, music listening, I think is one and music production for me of being an improviser has been another area where it's just been like one of the, an altered state of consciousness where like I, we call it flow. And that was another piece of this research that'll be published in a later article, experiencing that flow state and that highest level of creativity. Right. And then like, so there's that, there's that whole other, other end of it. And like in terms of secret chord, how that works in, I think it's not just about jazz improvisation or right. Like, or like, you know, like that, that style, but it's like, okay, I'm a vocalist um, doing a take on an album. And what the question is like that, it's right. It's a scientist kind of thing. It's like, what's the questions for me? It's like when someone hits the take that vocal take on the chorus, that they just know is it right. Okay. They know it's it. What does that mean? Why do they know that it's it? Is it something about the musical content itself that makes it, it, right? That's the perception kind of side that your chord looks at. Is there something going on physiologically or neurologically in that person's brain when they get into the state that is required to have that it take, right? 
And I think just that, so that's just kind of, that's where my research focused on was the brains, the brains of musicians while they were having those, let's call it it or flow or like optimal takes. And what we saw was that as people gain experience and really start to kind of um, form, automatize kind of some of the lower levels of playing. So in jazz, you can imagine there's, there's very complex chord sequences a lot of the time. Um, so we gave, you know, lots of chords to go through. And if you're a young jazz musician, um, I, I remember my, <laughs> remember my jazz classes at, at Emory, I literally had my Gary Motley, my teacher was standing in front of me and, and I was trying to play bass in a walking bass line to these like really fast, like ladybird standards that were like over 200 beats per minute. He would stand in front of me with his, with about two feet from my face, which you can't even imagine having someone that close to you. Now he took his, his right hand and started tapping my shoulder at the tempo of the song and told me to call out the notes as I was playing the walking bass, <laughs> like the walking bass lines. And it was like incredibly like this crazy cognitive load task, right? It's like, oh my God, I'm just learning these chords and these notes. And I have to think about it. And so what we see is that for, for young players, um, they need these more like conscious, um, conscious controlled kinds of processes. Uh, it's called our executive system. So it's like when we're consciously thinking about something and are really focused, um, this involves prefrontal brain areas that we see as being active in kind of novice um, and younger players. What we see for more experienced players, well, first, first their their improvisations are, are rated higher if you give them to a bunch of different experts, which is not surprising that expertise is correlated with that. But you see a, a very discreet change in brain activity where you see that frontal activity that's required for the for the novices kind of shift to posterior um, and also kind of more towards the left hemisphere as well. That's because um, the experts don't require that kind of conscious control. What actually happens is that as you gain expertise in as like a soloist or an improviser, um, I think it's just it's also happens in sports. You talk about flow state for like, you know, for basketball or tennis, like when you just get into that zone, it's the same kind of idea. Um, it's not just doesn't apply just to music, but it's like the release of that conscious control and thinking about what you're doing that allows, if you think of your brain as like this pool of cognitive resources, it allows you to devote your resources to other aspects of your playing, maybe like listening to other people, right? And acting, acting in a more kind of like sensory way with like a very sensory stimulus, which ultimately is music, which is like touch and listening. And that's kind of where you want your resources to be focused if you're able to really be in that like musical moment as much as possible. Well, that's so cool. Um, and it just makes me also, you know, the, it makes me wonder how, you know, you have this great body of knowledge and, and you know, everyone on the team has been working together, you know, to take this research to the next step and, and to test hypotheses. The the thing that comes up in, in the music tech um, context is how in the world do you translate all of this rich information and these fascinating studies and, and insights into something that has, uh, you know, is the, sort of has the discrete boundaries of a product that could be used for a particular sort of applied commercial purpose. So I wanted to hear from both of you, um, but Brian, maybe you want to jump in on this one. How did you guys go about distilling this incredible information and insight into how our minds work into something that you could put in, you know, that you could encode and that people could use in a, in a way that fits in with business practices, the way they happen today is what you're dealing with is so big and so exciting. And it makes this, this sort of amazing high level stuff. How do you bring it down into something that's like, okay, I'm doing some A&R. I want to check out this song and I need some extra tools to, to help me along and help me make some decisions. 
Well, uh, the very first part is to understand that even as we speak about this high-level science, even as uh, a lot of neuroscience terms are going to be thrown at you, uh, and as we discuss how machine learning and artificial intelligence plays a role in figuring all those things out, uh, what I don't want to get lost is that the thing that we are looking at, the thing that we are quantifying is actually something that's exceedingly simple because everyone understands. Uh, everyone might not understand how the brain is a statistical learning engine and that uh, music kind of manipulates that in order to give you a dopaminergic reaction, but everybody does understand that feeling of listening to their favorite song. Everyone gets the way that their hair stands up on their neck and arms when they hear this one portion of a song they love. For me, like the first four notes on, on Shine On You Crazy Diamond on the Wish You Were Here album or hearing Roses from Kanye West uh, talk about his, his grandmother passing everyone can understand these things. So what we're doing is really just quantifying the most human aspects of music enjoyment. And to answer your question, because we can quantify it, uh, we can not only reproduce it, but we can make it accessible in software. So for instance, because we're quantifying or uh, attempting to quantify music enjoyment and how the brain receives music, because we're able to model that, that means we're able to make it available in situations where it was not available before. For instance, an A&R has a thousand songs that he has to he has to listen to and try to decide if a particular audience is really going to enjoy that uh, enjoy these songs and which songs will they enjoy most a thousand songs five thousand ten thousand these are no longer human being tasks a human being is not going to be able to go through ten thousand songs and tell you what hundred he thinks are the best the time is just not there but because we can model these reactions inside software that makes it very helpful for humans facing inhuman tasks this is really more of a human anr wearing a robotic suit to make him stronger than a robot doing the task uh so if he has if he or she that anr has a thousand songs in front of them. Uh, if there was software that was available where he or she can choose a targeted audience and maybe get it down to the 50 or 100 songs with the highest likelihood of market success with a targeted audience, then that would be something that would make their job much easier. And that's what we want to be able to do. We want to take these inhuman tasks. Spotify is getting over 40,000 songs uploaded a day. There's really too much music for people to be able to handle this all on their own. What we really want to do is make sure that we are offering a software that not only helps them with these tasks, but helps them look at it from the most human perspective that helps them deal with the reason that we all got into music, that reaction, that love, that enjoyment. 
That's really exciting. So you you talk about things, you know, violating expectations in particular ways as ways that can be uh, something that that you guys have already worked on to quantify and and build into your product. I wanted to ask you two things, and either one of you can take this. The first one is, what do you feel is the next accessible sort of feature that you'd love to play around with that you feel like you could really quantify effectively and um, build into your system? And then what is one that's really elusive and challenging that you're like, oh man, if we could figure that one out, it would be amazing. So let's start with the the low hanging fruit first and then the challenge. So I don't know, David, Brian, whoever wants to jump in here. I'll, I'll take the low hanging fruit and I'll let David take the challenge. Uh, right now, <laughs> <laughs> right now we focus on music enjoyment, the dopamine, uh, the actual enjoyment of music. What I think the next step for us is is to go beyond just the enjoyment and go to the functionality of music what music makes you motivated to get up out of your bed in the morning what music makes you more motivated to give your all to a certain workout what music serves a function in your life if you're a truck driver on your 10th hour of a trip what song is going to keep your brain active and aware to be able to keep your eyes on the road if you are feeling a lot of anxiety what's the exact type of music that's going to be able to calm you or assist you in finding your center these type of functional tasks for music i think are the next step for us outside of music enjoyment that was the low hanging fruit. That was, that was, I think that's part of the future research. I feel like that covers covers both. So I think that's right. There's lots in terms of the features that we would add. You know, I'm really interested. I'm really interested. So in terms of like, I'll give a little just like just in terms of the future stuff. Like we talk about having, um, you know, we all we all love music equipment, and and we have a couple neuroscientists on the team. So we talk about building a facility. Um, I believe it's going to be in Philadelphia, um, where we have a music studio slash research laboratory. So it's like an amazing studio inside with multiple kind of EEG and, and different kind of physiological readings, we do things like pupil dilation and basically start to really kind of create um, a rigorous research uh, like department and arm that is ultimately um, taking the expertise on the team of music information retrieval engineers, of music uh, music industry executives, of, of of music neuroscientists, and 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 asking all the questions, kind of that I was talking about before, it as like a, as researchers, um, and looking not just at kind of A and R and, and discovery and marketing. Well, that's that's our first target with with Doper, um, but really seeing kind of how what can we learn about music and the brain in terms of you know, how music aligns with film. How does music influence kind of the soundtrack for a video game? How does music influence, you know, branding, branding and, and advertising? Um, how does music influence, you know, your your airplane ride and, and, and looking at how we can always move forward in terms of uh, user customiza customization. So, you know, and that's, I think, um, really kind of the gold standard um, eventually of, you know, because right now, you know, where we use like kind of genre and, and profiles as the way that we um, model, model different audiences, right? We say we target audiences. So we're modeling these like kind of expectations of those audiences, but down the road, we really want to be asking questions about individuals. And so, you know, potentially 
um, you know, working with company, working with big DSPs like Spotify's and Apple's and Amazon's the world, um, you know, would be interesting to us in the future. Cool. And that, that lab sounds absolutely amazing. <laughs> I, I really hope you build it. And I hope at some point I could get a tour. That sounds like so much fun. <laughs> I don't know. E yeah, yeah, EEGs and like while you're, well, if someone's mixing or when yeah, someone's doing, great. you could have, and you know, to do both, the, the, you know, to see like, what is, if someone can see the musician, how does that affect their response? How does that the, affect the musician's brain? I mean, there's so many because this is this is awesome um cool well i that's wanna... a great that's that's a great that's a great one we should we should do that study, we should do that study. <laughs> okay. yeah i'm very i'm very excited about uh <laughs> about the the future lab and uh dave's work into what's going on inside the mind of the artist as the artist creates their best work i think that this research will allow us in the future to be able to uh, contribute to the world knowledge of how to get the best performance out of our creatives. And really, uh, we'd love to be able to be a part of just galvanizing a, another revolution of creativity and higher level creativity. That would be a long term goal for us. Yeah, there's, that's that's amazing, and um, I love that. All you know, kudos to that. <laughs> um, and I want to thank both of you for a fascinating conversation, and for sharing your knowledge, expertise, and perspectives so generously. Before we sign off, where can people find you, and who want to learn more about Doper, Secret Chord, or um, how neuroscience could improve the way we experience music? Well, first of all, anyone listening can go to doper.com. That's D-O-P-R.com, D-O-P-R.com. Uh, that's a great way to contact us. Uh, if any artists, managers, or labels or anything want to be a part of our beta test coming up here in the summer, uh, you can contact us at doper.com or anybody interested in the field at all or anyone interested in investment opportunities to be a part of the Secret Cord Laboratories team, doper.com, D-O-P-R.com is a great way to contact us. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. And I want to just leave everyone with saying you should, if you haven't already, go over to musictectonics.com. We're having a lot of online meetups um, since we are, you know, all kind of itching to talk and hang out with other amazing adults. Uh, <laughs> sorry, um, perhaps I was projecting a little bit there. Um, but I am. Look, I would love to see everybody there. I'm going to pop into a few of them. Um, and meanwhile, um, keep listening. We're going to have a lot of great new podcasts coming up and other fun stuff. And thanks so much again. This is Tristan New Year Jaeger from Rock Paper Scissors. Thank you, David Rosen. Thank you, Brian Owens from Secret Chord, and I really appreciate the time. Thank you. Thanks for having us. You're listening to Music Tectonics.